Grab a Bible. If you've got one, great. If you don't, you're going to need one. Some of the things will be on the board. A lot of it will not. Um, that's intentional, as I say every week, because I want you to have a Bible. I want you to take God's Word with you. And I appreciate if you think I say something interesting or cool, but I really don't care if you remember that. I want you to remember His Word and want to go back and look. So grab one. Go to the last book of the Old Testament. So that would be Malachi. That's, you know, it sounds like it's in the middle because it's the last book of the first section, but it's not. It's actually far to the right. So when you get near towards Matthew, Mark, you've passed it. So it's just before that short little book, last one of the Old Testament. So really quick to bring us back because now we've, we've come to a milestone. If you're here next week, everything changes. So we've come to a milestone. So really quick, we've been telling the story of God, right? And we started before creation and the God who existed before creation, who made all things. We talked about him a little bit. And then we talked about how he created all things, heaven, earth, mankind. And I'm doing this super fast. If it gets too quick for you, that's okay. You've got a Bible. It's all in there. So uh, he creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve uh, choose rather than to continue to be submissive to his kingdom to create their own. Uh, in doing so, they sin, they rebel against God. God, uh, because of that, death enters the world, attached to that sin. But God makes a promise to Eve, even in that moment, that a child, well, to both of them, but specifically to Eve, that a child from her body, from her descendancy, a, a son would come who would right all things, who would restore, who would defeat death and the enemy. And so we've been getting more of that story and gradually watching for that person. That promise since the third chapter of the whole book. All right. And we've skipped through hitting major points, but we followed that seed all the way down through the ages until it came to Noah and a flood and was preserved through his family during the flood. We followed the seed on the other side down through Abraham. Uh, when God chose Abraham, Abraham had a son, Isaac, and then Isaac had sons, one of which being Jacob. The seed passed through to Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Thank you. Yes, Israel. And Israel then becomes a father of 12 sons. Those 12 sons then begin to have a lot of children, but they stay together so that they become like tribes. And we have these 12 tribes of Israel. Ultimately, those tribes become a nation, a family and a nation. They find themselves enslaved in Egypt. Uh, all of that's in Genesis, the first book. And then things slow way down as you begin to read through the Bible. And that family of people, that nation of Israel is rescued. God sends a deliverer after 400 years of slavery. Sends a deliverer. Who? Who does he send to deliver them from Egypt? Moses, you got to wait. Y'all got to wake up. Some of y'all have heard this every week. You know, for like 72 something weeks now. I don't even know how long. Anyway, uh, so... Moses comes, Moses leads the people out. He brings them into the desert, and in the desert, they go to Mount Sinai, and they meet God. They actually hear from God. God does this amazing thing. He gives them his word. He says, I want you to know me. I want you to know who I am, what I like, what I don't like. What, what, so he gives them a word, his word. They enter this kind of covenant, like a marriage, and he says, I'm going to bring you into my home, my land that I'm going to give you. And Joshua leads the people into this land. And the only rule is, if you're going to be in my home, we are together. It's you and me. That's what God says, sort of. Uh, we're married. It's us. Don't cheat. And instead, Israel begins to get in this circle of cheating uh, on God and worshiping other gods and following other things and, and such like that. 
God raises up judges to deliver them. And for a while they're good, but then they go back. And then they're good, and they go back, and this cycle continues, and then they go to kings. God gives them kings, and the kings begin to rule, but the kings get really wicked. Um, Some are good, some are not. There's prophets that God sends along to speak for him to the people, directly to the kings and to the people uh, on his behalf. They kill uh, many of them. Ultimately, the, the kingdom of Israel splits because they can't even get along anymore, and they split in the civil war. And the northern half becomes Israel, and the southern half becomes Judah. Uh, Jerusalem in the southern half is still capital of the south anyway. It's still where the temple is and all of that stuff. And they've got so far from God that God says, out. You're out of my home. Out of my home. Like, I've had it out. So the first kingdom to go is the northern half. God brings this nation called Assyria that was the first world power in 722 B.C. You can look it up. It happened. It's historical. Sends Assyria. Assyria destroys the northern kingdom and erases them, scatters them all over the place. But they can't conquer the southern kingdom. God's not ready for that yet. Years later, Babylon conquers Assyria. Babylon becomes the world power. Babylon comes back to the southern kingdom where now God's had it with them too. And God in 586 B.C. gives the southern kingdom to Babylon. And now all of the people are scattered or enslaved in Babylon. Some of those that went to Babylon, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, we talked about them. Well, Ezekiel went, Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem, but same time period. Uh, And Jerusalem is wrecked, wrecked, totally wrecked, leveled, demolished. But in 538 B.C., Persia conquers Babylon and becomes the world power. And the king of Persia, after 70 years, tells the people of the Jews, you can go home. And he allows them to go home. They go home in three waves. And the first wave goes back and begins to rebuild the temple. And some of the minor prophets in your Bible talk about that. But by 515 B.C., that temple is rebuilt and is standing. But it's nothing like it was. Haggai, Zechariah, those are two that were there during that time in 480, as we're, can, we're counting down, remember B.C. So 480 B.C., Esther becomes queen of Persia. We talked about her being a Jew. We've already talked about her. 458 B.C., the second wave goes, and Ezra's in that one. And Ezra writes. And then finally in 445 B.C., Nehemiah in the third wave comes and Malachi is in there somewhere but by the time of Ezekiel and Nehemiah Malachi is now there and Nehemiah has rebuilt the wall so the temple's up the wall's up and maybe some scattered houses for sure and that's it and now we come to Malachi the last book and the title today is I have loved you Uh, these are words that strike me in this book heavily and I'll show them to you today but look in your Bible Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 And I'm going quick today because we're going to cover this, and I don't want to keep you the whole time, but even what I just said was a lot. That was a mouthful, right? But the cool part is you have the book, so you can go back and read it for yourself. It's all there, plus some. Malachi 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Lord, thank you for your word. I love it. I really do love it. It is such a gift. From the moment you gave it at Mount Sinai, 
in the years that passed since, all the way to the point that now I, I hold it in my hand, just like everybody in the room, whether it's on a phone or a tablet or the, the pages. It's your word. It's amazing. You wrote it down for us, Lord. I pray today that as a student who happens to hold a microphone, I'm here to listen to you, and I pray you speak. I want to hear from your word, too. I love you, and thank you for the privilege of holding it, all of us and the responsibility that comes with that. Love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, when Molly, like, gave up her whole life and decided she was going to marry this loser, which was a big deal, you know, when she decided to do that, there were uh, clear and obvious benefits. But there are other benefits you may not know, like the fact that she uh, holidays are not a big deal to her. Matter of fact, they don't really matter at all for the most part. Not even Valentine's Day. Her birthday, on the other hand, huge. But I'll take that trade, you know, one big one, and then the rest don't really matter. So that, that's where she is. But, and just she means that, but obviously I still get her candy or something on Valentine's Day. I'll still give her something. Why? I don't really have to. I really don't. You may say, yeah, she says she doesn't. No, she really doesn't care, but I still do it. Sometimes, uh, during random moments, I'll send flowers over to her at work or something. doesn't really apply to any given holiday. It's kind of a random moment. Why would I do that? Some of you guys may be puzzled. Some of you girls are on this all day long. Uh, why does it matter more that I give a gift that's not on a holiday? You know, I, I, I know I'm a failure in a lot of ways. I know that. But I do understand that my love for her is more expressed um, when it's publicly and not expected and not demanded. I know that's more visible to her. The Lord is no different. And loving him is no different. There's days that we're expected, whether it be church or whatever, you know, Easter. Or what. There's days we're expected to to show up, to be devoted, to give gifts. But the way we live out all the other days, all those other days, that'll tell where our heart really is. Do we really love him? Or are we checking boxes and doing what we have to do with as minimal sacrifice as possible? What's the cheapest, easiest way to make him happy so I can keep doing what I want to do? Um, I always put one point. Uh, it's not the only point, but it's just the one that sticks with me. So this one, some of them are short. This one's a little bit longer. This sounds like a sentence Paul wrote, but here it is. Uh, and it's on the back of the sheet if you have it. If you don't, you can get it later. But it's God has loved us through all our rebellion. And when we repent, he is always there because he never changes. Therefore, our love for him should be obvious, should be obvious and pure. So notice the first words that God uses to address his people. Malachi is a pretty dark, heavy book, but look at the first words. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. That sounds good. What's the problem? But you say, how have you loved us? Verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, oracle is a word we've seen it before as we've been studying. It means burden. And no doubt Malachi's got a burden here. After all the years of exile, after all the years of rebuilding, uh, God's got hard news again. Again. Uh, look at verse 10, chapter 1. 
Oh, that they're God speaking, Malachi writing, God speaking. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of my temple, is what he's saying, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll not accept in an offering from your hand. He just said, I've loved you. That, that's heavy. But remember, too, man, remember, too, that it's a gift to hear from God. And it's actually an even greater gift to hear correction from God. You know what I'm saying? To, to hear that we need to change. Like, you're walking into fire here. If I have to tackle you and break your hip in the process, I'm not going to let you walk into the fire. That, that's a greater sign of love than anything else. Have you all ever seen the video uh, went viral some time ago with the guy hanging uh, below the other guy on the hang glider. Like they were doing a tandem flight, and the dude's strap came undone right as soon as they took off. And the, the guy who's the guide is holding the other guy by the arm. You can Google this junk. It's crazy if you haven't seen it. And holds him all the way to the bottom of this mountain. And it's not swift. It takes a minute for them to get down, but doesn't let him go. Uh, and the whole thing's videoed because they were videoing it. So... Uh, the guy's arm gets pretty torn up. Both arms get really torn up. They have to have surgeries. Uh, but both, obviously, the other guy lives. I cannot imagine. I'll lose my mind. But this guy had the ability to stare his own death in the face. You know what I mean? He's looking down. He's hanging. And this guy is holding him uh, so tight that it's tearing his arm and his shoulder and everything. But he gets to see that. The problem with us is we cut the straps. And, and and then when God grabs our arm and our arm starts hurting and pulling and tearing and whatever else, we get mad at him. Like, let go. What are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? Because we don't look down. We just assume that, hey, we can fly. We don't need you. We got this. We can fly. Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, you don't have to turn to it. You can mark it. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens every son whom he receives. Verse 11 says, for the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's a gift to hear this thing from God through Malachi. So what's God condemning? Well, temple worship has been reestablished for decades now, and they've been doing it, but so much is wrong. And Nehemiah and Ezra have both said some of the same things that Malachi says. And I'm not going to go through them all. You can read the book of Malachi yourself, but I'll give you a quick overview. Malachi gives these series of questions that are from God. And they're designed for the hearer to answer in such a way that they look inside themselves and discover on their own. Jesus would do this constantly. Like Jesus would ask questions of people to try to get them to look inside. The issues, though, are the priests in the temple have become super corrupt. The uh, worship is routine and just being sung. Divorce is widespread everywhere. Uh, the poor are being totally ignored. And giving, tithing, giving is being cheated at best and totally neglected at worst. And Malachi ends his book with this promise of Messiah, this messenger, and also of a person he calls Elijah, who is John the Baptist. And we know this because in the New Testament, Jesus tells us Malachi wrote about himself as this messenger, Messiah, and John as Elijah. We'll come to that later. But in the end, he says that. At that point, though, and we'll talk about this next week a little more, but at that point, God goes dead silent for 400 years. So when you turn 
the last page of Malachi, and you turn from the Old Testament to Matthew, the first page of the New Testament, you actually turn 400 years and God has said nothing. The next thing God will say after Malachi is to two women, Mary and Elizabeth, that they're going to give birth to these two men that Malachi says are going to come. All right? So, but back in Malachi's day, it's only been a century, really, a little over a century since they returned from exile. So how did the people get this bad this fast? You know? Well, I can imagine they come back and it's like, yeah, okay. We're home. Yeah, we're home. But have you seen this place? Like, it's a mess. It's a disaster. The local people hate us. And we're going to all this trouble to rebuild for what? All we've been doing is rebuilding. For what? Was Persia really that bad? Like, it, it was, Persia was great. You know, and this temple over here is nothing like my grandparents said it was going to be. It doesn't look anything like it used to be. It's dangerous here. Everybody hates us. Everybody looks out for number one. Even our own people do. My wife hates it here. She's mad that we left in the first place, and I'm sick of her anyhow. And if you've seen the local ladies, they're super fine. You know, uh, where's God anyway? Where's God anyway? The wicked are rolling. I mean, they're making bank. Things are great. They're successful. They're paying their bills and all that other stuff. The people who are trying to be faithful to God are getting run over, stomped on. They're losers. The poor are everywhere. They're begging. They're annoying. I'm try- Hey, some of us are trying to make something of ourselves. These guys are just constantly with their hands out everywhere. The priests are cheating. If the priests are cheating, I mean, you ought to see the sacrifices they accept. If they're going to take that junk, why in the world do I care what I bring? You want me to bring something fancy? Look what they're taking. They're all about themselves anyway. Seriously, why bother? Like, why bother? It's been 2,000 years since God promised Abraham. 2,000 years since God promised. Where are you at, God? Where are you at? And speaking of promises, where's this king that's supposed to come from the lineage of David? Where's he at? Like, where's that been? This Messiah, this king, where's he at? Jeremiah and Ezekiel both wrote about a new covenant during the exile. Where's that? You know, it's been well over a century since then. Yeah, here we are. And you want me. To bring you the best of the nothing that I got. And you say you love me. You say you love me. Back in chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say how? You could put a little question mark there. How? Really? Sometimes if we're honest, I think we feel the same way, right? Obviously, the story changes a little, but I think we feel the same way. We see all of our surroundings, and we so easily forget. We so easily forget. Romans 5, 7, the most amazing two verses in the Bible, some would say, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ threw us a bone not what it says christ did us a solid not what it says died for us died for us and you're going to ask how but we live you know we live in a world of what have you done for me lately right i mean we do if we're honest we all do too 
We live in this God, what have you done for me lately world. And these guys did too. He chose them and he saved them from exile. He endured them for centuries and all this stuff. He's got them back home. But these Jews now have settled into a way of life that allows them to live however it is they want to live. And then just show up and make religion into this ritual where as long as they do something to maintain some semblance of ritual, we're good here. And God, you ought to be proud of us for it. As long as I come on Sunday, we're good. As long as I give something, we're good. Uh, as long as I show up at Easter, back it up however far you want. As long as we show up at, at Easter, I'm good. As long as I do something, you ought to be satisfied. And centuries later, that's a problem for the church. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, Jesus speaking through John said to a church, said, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and You've not grown weary, but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you have at first. Same thing. Like you might be working hard. You might be doing a lot of great things. But you're not loving me. At least not like you said you did. Not when you first heard those words that Christ died for sinners. You don't love me like you did when you first heard that. So what prevents God from just starting over? You ever ask yourself this question? This is a good scary one for you. What prevents God from just wadding the universe up like a, a piece of paper and throwing it aside and saying, I'm done? Are you going to stand up and tell him he can't do that? What prevents him from doing that? He said he wouldn't. It's called his word, right? He actually is trustworthy. You know, uh, verse 6 of chapter 3, where I started. Look at this. What prevents him from doing it? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, another term for Israel, are not consumed. Look at that. There's a direct link there between the Lord and his people. Do you see that? I, therefore you. I, therefore you. God has been in a covenant with these people since Abraham. Really, since Adam and Eve. Remember when we started, he made a promise to Eve? So because of who he is, the promises to them will apply no matter what. Not because of who they are. Not because of who they It doesn't say because of you, I. It says because of I, you. And he does not change. Hebrews, what is it? Hebrews 13 that says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He's always the same. It doesn't matter at what point in time his word stays true. Numbers 23, verse 19, you can just write it down. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he not said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Those rhetorical questions. Of course he will. He doesn't get fed up like we do. He's not affected by emotion in the way we are. If he said he's not going to do it, he's not going to do it. If he said he's going to do it, best believe he's going to do it. And it says, therefore, you're not consumed. That word consumed is a very scary word. It means finished, wasted, destroyed, perished, vanished. That's some scary stuff. The only reason that will not happen to them or us is because he doesn't change. His promises and his word stand even when ours don't. Look what he says in chapters 3, verse 7. 
From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. Which we just talked about that. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you say, how shall we return? You know, always turning aside from God's word displays two things. And I'm guilty of this, man. I wrestle too. I may be a pastor, but don't let that fool you, man. I struggle with sin like anybody. Uh, I can guarantee you that. Always, though, turning away from God's word always displays two things. A low view of God and a low concern about sin. Always. A low view of God and a low concern about sin. When they say, how shall we return? That's not like a desperate, oh, Lord, how do we come back? That's sarcasm. God's speaking on their behalf, but it's sarcasm. It's like saying, what are you talking about, God? We didn't go anywhere. If you looked around the room, it's you who are not here. You know, have you looked around? Have you seen this mess that we live in? We didn't go anywhere. You left us in this garbage. Uh, he gives a very visible example to them there in the text. You can read it in your own to point out that that is simply not the case. It's their giving, you know, and he points out that by cheating on what they're given, they're robbing God and themselves because they're limiting God's work in God's temple for God's people who are them. So by robbing God, they're in essence robbing themselves. And what, they're, what he's pointing out is, you know I'm here because you're bringing something. You know I'm here because you're bringing something. You just don't care. It just doesn't matter. Return to me and I'll return to you is like a Hebraic, a Hebrew custom of, of speech or way of speech basically saying, if you, when you come right back, you're going to see I'm standing here. You know, when you come back, you'll see I'm here. And he says, I can prove it. Stop robbing me. Instead, fill the house up, fill my house up, and see what happens. See if I don't respond by blessing you beyond measure. You want to know if I'm still here? Come back to the house, fill it up, see what happens. Now, of course, they don't. I hear that passage gets preached all the time in terms of giving. Like, all of you, be sure to empty your pockets on the way, you know, and fill the house up and see if you don't get a blessing from it. But I don't know that it's ever actually happened. God's almost saying it like you won't do this. Like you won't do this. Um, return to me, though. Man, those are great words. Come home. Basically what he's saying. Like, come home. Start by caring about our home. Start by giving your finances correctly to our home start by loving honestly in our home and you're gonna find that he's right here he's been waiting i've been waiting for you the whole time i'm fully devoted to you i never left i don't change i don't change why don't you change god verse 2 chapter 1 i have loved you if Christ loved you and died for you when you were a sinner, what makes you think anything you could possibly do would change it? If he loved you and died for you when you were already a sinner, what is it that you think you can do that would make him not love you? But you say, how have you 
loved us. And he goes on here in that passage, you can read it in chapter 1 there after he says, I've loved you, to explain how he had loved Jacob, which is them, over Esau. And what he's saying here is that he loved Jacob with such extreme love that it comes across as hate for the other. And notice, by the way, he's not comparing two boys here. He's comparing two nations. He's referring to Edom, which are the descendants of Esau, and Israel, which is the descendants, obviously, of Jacob or Israel. So he's not comparing the two brothers. He's comparing the nations that come for him. But he's making a point. This love-hate thing right here is also a form of speech, like a Hebrew form of speech or expression. For instance, Jesus used it all the time. Well, he used it more a few times. One time, very famously, look in Luke 14. It'll be up here. You can make a note. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. Hey, sounds like a win, right? We got everybody's following us. We got mega church ready to go. You know, the, everybody's lined up. It's fixing to be huge. And instead, though, he turns around and he says this. I'm so glad you guys are all here, man. Let's pray. Let's celebrate. Let's No, he turns around and he says, if anyone's going to follow me, if y'all want to keep following me, cool. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot, 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 cannot be my disciple. That is not a twisted word you can work around. That is a very black and white definitive term. It is impossible. You cannot. I will not accept you for a disciple unless you cannot be a disciple unless you hate your family. Like Jesus, I don't know if you know, but that's a complete contradiction with the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Yeah. I mean, what? Didn't you write those? Aren't you God? You know, are you contradicting yourself? What he's saying is that your love for him must be so great that others would view it as a hatred towards people that you claim to care about. I'll give you some examples. A biblical example. Matthew chapter 4. You know this story. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is calling his disciples. Okay, so, okay, Jesus will see did this practically get applied. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter. Peter is a married man. You find this out because they stay at his mother-in-law's house a couple of times. So Peter's married. So we don't know if he had kids or nothing, but we know he's got a wife. And Andrew, his brother, and they're casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That doesn't mean like the most of us, they enjoyed going out fishing. That was their profession. How did he provide for his wife? He was a fisherman. Okay, make sure we're on the same page. That was his job. That's what he did. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left what? Their nets and followed him. They walked off their job. He walked off the job. What happened to his wife? What went on? Well, don't think he just abandoned her. They still go stay in the home of mother-in-law a few times, which tells you that they were probably living with family. So she's not on her own. Uh, but at the same time, People would look at that and go, what are you doing? Don't you have a responsibility to your wife? What kind of jerk are you, man? You're going to follow this bum? I know he calls himself a rabbi, but nobody knows where he came from. He was born over here in the hills. I mean, are you you're really going to tell me you're going to walk off and leave your family for him? Oh, he goes on. Verse 19. Uh, excuse me, verse uh, 20. They leave their nest, follow him. 21. 
And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. So now they've been fishing with dad, family business, all night. Mending nets now, getting ready for tomorrow before they pack it up. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Think dad was embarrassed? I don't know. We don't know. I'm not going to pretend like I know. He might have been proud. Hey, look, my kids are going with the rabbi. I don't know. He also might have been like, what, y'all just going to leave me here with this? We, we don't have any idea. Maybe the other fishermen in the other boats are like, what are your boys doing, man? They're just going to dump you and follow this guy? Like, you think you're, I thought your kids are supposed to care about you. Molly and I have been uh, in a lot of places, but one place in particular uh, in West Africa that is a Muslim community or Muslim nation is illegal for the gospel there or anything that's not Muslim. And one guy we met there, I won't tell the whole story now, I'll tell you some other time if you don't know it, but uh, a guy we met there who I'm still friends with and speak to occasionally online uh, became a believer. And it was epic. Uh, everybody was tripping that this guy had become a believer because nobody that's there had seen anybody become a believer because it's a death sentence. This guy then invites Molly and I and the two other people that are with us to come to his home and have dinner with his family and asks us to pray for the meal. And it was terrifying. I'm not even lying. It was, it was a very, very scary moment. The family did not come in the room. He wanted us to pray loud. Uh, now, we were fine. We had a meal. Everything was good. But for him, and he's still alive, but for him, the fact that he's converted to Christianity in any, some, any public way, at the very least, can cost his dad his job. Cost him a job. It cost his dad a job. Because why did you raise your kid like this? Why did you let your kid? So he is now potentially putting his family on the street because of his faith in following Christ. You love your family. You hate your family, dude. You're going to follow Jesus and this guy. And our whole family is now on the street. Can't eat because you're following this, this Jesus guy. That is what it means to say If you want to come after me to hate your father and mother, it means that he is elevated. Jesus doesn't stop with the family, though. Notice he said there, you must hate even your own life. He's not talking about suicide. He's not talking about that. But he's saying to be so in love with Jesus that you could say like Paul did, to die is gain. Like even to die is gain. So in love with him that even dying is gain. Why? Because He has loved us. You know, the wretched sinner that I am standing here in front of you today, and it wasn't free for him. It cost big time. It cost him family. You know, it it cost him his life. When he said, It might cost your family. It cost him his family. When he said it might cost you your life, it cost him his life. Everybody knows that John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It cost. That wasn't free. It's a free gift to us, but don't gloss over that like that means nothing. It cost him everything. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? How do we walk out of here with this, practically speaking? Well, there was a verse that I kept running into all week. Um, and I, I don't think I have it on the board, and I don't need it up there because it's so simple and small that you'll remember it. Luke 12, 
34. It says, if you don't know it, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, and all I've had stuck in my head is, man, tre- treasure Jesus. Like, that doesn't mean say Jesus is important to me. That means, Jesus, if I got the money, you can have it. If I got a wife, you can have her. If I got a home, you can have it. If I got a build, if I got a church in Tempe, Arizona, you can have it. If I got Jordans, you can have them. Do that one for the wife. It, no matter what it is, you can have them. Like you can have it. I don't, I don't, it's yours. If you want my life, you can have it. Like, and if you treasure Him like that, all my money, I'll bring it all to you, Lord. You can have it. If you treasure Him like that, then your heart is going to go after Him hard. Your love for him is going to go hard, hard, hard. Uh, stand up with me when you get a second here, and let's close this up. So we finished in the Old Testament today, y'all. We finished it. And one thing I can tell you that's crystal clear from all of this is we can't stop returning to sin. I don't know if y'all feel like I do about that, but we cannot stop returning to sin. It's this, it's this hunger in us that draws us to do things that please us that are wrong. And one day, listen, one day we're accountable for that. One day we are accountable for that. One day we stand before the Lord and he says, I have loved you. And one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to say, oh, really, how? Or you're going to say, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Because you're going to know how he loved you. You're going to know how he loved you. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. If you don't know that, the cross is the only hope you have. Because your greatest enemy, the one I promise you, no matter how bad a boy you are, you can't beat is death. And God didn't need to die. He didn't need to flex his arms and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know what? it wasn't a show of strength. It was for you because we can't beat death. That's what the cross is about. He died on that cross in order to face death. And beat it. It's amazing. Like he beat it. Like you have the privilege of seeing life eternal. Of being able to be free from the fear of that. To be able to like Paul say to die is gain man. Now that's great. Now I get to be with him. Who loved me enough to stretch himself out on a cross. It's amazing. If you haven't given your life to him. That's where it starts. And it starts today. And I'm not repeating a prayer. You know this. You just tell him. I know who I am Lord. I'm a sinner. I know it. I know where my failures are. I know who I am. But I trust who you are. I trust that I will never be good enough to reach you, but you came to me. I trust that though I don't know how, I believe you beat death. I believe you did. I believe in the cross, and I'm trusting you. You tell them in your own words. And then come tell us because we want to pray with you, man, and start you on a path to know what it means to follow Christ. Let me pray. Lord, your word is awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you for it. Thank you for each individual that's here that's been able to share some time in it today, myself included. And, uh, Lord, I do pray that you just help us always go back to the fact that you have loved us. You loved us. So much so, Lord, that you can look down from across at the people who nailed you there and say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm one of those, Lord. I know it. Thank you for making me new. 
Thank you for making me a new creation. I pray you would do that in the hearts of people today that would confess to you they need that. Change lives today, Lord, as we leave, mine included. I love you, and I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.